Welcome to the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine's Research Learning Series podcast, which focuses on helping you become a star research scholar. I'm Mary Haas, a medical education fellow at the University of Michigan and part of the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine team. Meet my husband and fellow ER doc, Nate Haas. And I'm Nate. I'm also an emergency physician at the University of Michigan, where my research interests include the ED-ICU interface and topics like DKA and cardiac arrest. I'm bringing the education background. And I'm bringing the research background. We're excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Mike Piskarich. He is an associate professor and research director at Hennepin Medical Center in Minnesota. He's an avid researcher with a focus on the metabolic response of human patients to severe sepsis. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. We're looking forward to discussing with you how to write specific games and getting to pick your brain a bit on this important topic for researchers. Thanks. Happy to be here. So first, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Where did you train? Where do you currently work? How did you get into the areas of research that you're interested in? I went to med school at the University of Wisconsin and then went to do my residency at Carolina's Medical Center. I went into residency really with the plan of just becoming a community practitioner and working in private practice. However, during my intern year at Carolinas, I came into contact with both Alan Jones and Jeff Klein, who are really active and successful clinical researchers. They really got me excited about doing research as a career. So after residency, I decided to stay on for a research fellowship. And during that fellowship, I conducted a small, double-blind, randomized control trial of L-carnitine in sepsis. And scientifically, it really got me interested in the role of metabolism and mitochondrial function in the disease. During my fellowship, though, Alan moved to Mississippi, where he would eventually become chair and recruit me there. After my fellowship, I spent six or seven years continuing to work with metabolism and sepsis through a couple of career development awards, including one from the Emergency Medicine Foundation, as well as another K-23 through the NIH. I actually just moved up to Minneapolis, where I have a dual appointment at Hennepin County Medical Center, as well as the University of Minnesota. All right. Now that we know a little bit about you, let's get into the nitty gritty. Let's start off with a really basic question. What exactly are specific aims? The way I like to think about specific aims is they're basically the elevator pitch for your grant. You're trying to answer the question to the granting agency, why should we give you money? Elevator pitch. I like that. It's kind of like your Shark Tank spiel. What are some of the things you consider when trying to form this elevator pitch you speak of? The first thing to know is that it's really important to figure out who your audience is. And this can require a bit of background work and a bit of homework. You really need to figure out who would be funding the project. What are their funding priorities? So a lot of times you can get this kind of by reading either explicitly or between the lines of what's either called a funding opportunity announcement or an FOA or either an RFA, RFP, request for applications or request for proposals. Any granting agency is going to put these out and read them very carefully line by line. They're very boring, but they give you a lot of information about what they're interested in funding. You can also take a look at what they've funded previously, what kind of grants as well as grantees to see if there are certain patterns of the kind of things they like there. As well as the institution or the funder, you also have to think about who's going to be reviewing your grant, which may or may not be the same thing. To find that panel for the NIH, for instance, you can go and they actually post their study sections online. You can see exactly who will be reviewing your grants. For foundations, it can be a little trickier. For small ones, especially like emergency medicine, it's a small community and you can really just ask around, find people who either currently or have previously been on the committee to kind of get their feedback on what kind of ideas play well with that group. Let's next talk about the psychology of peer review, as this is something that can definitely color the entire discussion. So like you said, you have to know your audience that you're writing to. Yeah, Nate, that's definitely accurate. 
Keep in mind that these peer reviewers are reviewing a lot of grants, anywhere between six up to 12 to 15. And the packets, depending on where you go, can be upwards of 100 pages. The people doing these reviews are often mid-career or seasoned researchers, so it's not like they don't have other competing demands on their time. You have to find a way to really catch their attention. And in reality, your application is only going to be read in detail by two to three of those reviewers who are going to present it to the rest of the group. The vast majority of the applications that are reviewed are ultimately going to be rejected. And most of the time at a committee, 10 to 20 percent or maybe 40 to 50 percent will be funded if you're lucky at a foundation. Half of the grants are going to be rejected without any committee discussion at all. So you have to find a way to really cut through that noise and make your application stand out. This is what a good specific names page really does. Man, sounds like a tough crowd. So how can you format your aims to get their attention and receive a favorable review? How do you play the game? That's a great question and really what this is all about. The general format of a specific SAMES page is at the top, you've got your introduction. At the bottom is what you're planning to do. The way I like to think about it is you have to catch their attention right away in the introduction. And the way I like to do that is I like to tell a story. Your story is, well, what are you studying and why? Another way to put that is what is the public health impact, including the morbidity, the mortality, the cost? Is there a health disparity there? In other words, why are you studying it? To know whether what you're studying is important, you really need to have a good grasp of the literature so you can prove to both yourself as well as prove to reviewers that there's a clear gap there that you're going to fill. This might require enlisting other experts, particularly when you're early on in your career, to make sure A, a real gap exists, and that two, other people care about it. So at the beginning of your specific sayings page, I would say one to two thirds of the page, depending on your style and your mentor style, is going to be the specific argument for why your idea is important. The remaining space is going to be to specifically, and I mean that specifically, what you're going to do to answer those questions that you've laid out above. Not a vague statement about, oh, we're going to do this study and we're going to find some answers. You need to be very specific about what you want to do. Most people, when they do these grants, they're going to have three aims, but for small grants, you can sometimes get away with two. If you go to four aims or something, people are going to start criticizing your grant. It's just outside of the realm of normal. So if you have more things you want to do, you can do little sub-aims like 1A, 1B. When I was mentioning before that they should be specific, I mean phrases like, I'm going to test the hypothesis that, I'm going to determine the risk factors for X, I'm going to enroll this number of patients. I'm going to be testing the association between X and Y or measuring a prevalence. Whatever you want to do, you want it to definitively answer the question, even if it's a small incremental thing that lets you set the stage for your next bigger question that will ultimately come in your next grant. I think that's some really helpful advice to, first of all, get their attention, to next try to tell a story, and to try to be as specific as possible. So let's try to move on to some do's and don'ts. Maybe we can first start with the do's. As I mentioned before, I really think it's important to try to tell a compelling story. Once you get their attention, you have to have clear, testable hypotheses. Figure out what really is cutting edge. Keeping in mind that whatever's published in the literature is often two to three years behind what's really going on out there or is really the cutting edge. And the only way to really know what's going on is to go to conferences or read abstracts from conferences so you can see what's actually coming down the pipeline. Another way to do this is seeing what grants are funded because that's what's going to be cutting edge in the next three to five years. 
Another way to do this is to get good mentors and collaborators that are respected in their area, both inside and outside of your institution. And this is particularly important for early career and career development type awards. Other things you should do, formatting is actually really important and you can talk to your mentors or talk to other people who are successful researchers about how to do this. Use all the space allotted to you. Usually this means half-inch margins, 10 or 12-point font, depending on what kinds you do. And that's all outlined by that RFP or Request for Proposals I mentioned before. All of those formatting things are included in there, and you should follow them. If yours is different from everybody else's, it's going to stand out and not in a good way. If you can come up with a good pathway, schematic, or good figure that's going to make the reviewer's job easier, that's great. Anything you can do to make the reviewer's job easier easier and catch their attention is only going to help you down the line. So you're saying that good mentorship is key and you want to follow the format instructions. Being an outlier when it comes to formatting is not a good thing for specific games. So you told us about some of the do's. What about some of the don'ts? Well, I think a place where every investigator, but particularly investigators early on get into trouble is being overly ambitious. That criticism is kind of the kiss of death on most grants. So don't promise the world. Really incremental and safe is actually what succeeds in peer review. You want some innovation, but my experience with emergency physicians is we don't have to worry about being innovative or going big. We actually struggle on being narrow and incremental. And so most emergency physicians need to go in that direction and don't need to worry about their innovation. Don't redo work that's already been done. If a study's already proven what you're looking at, you need to do something else or at least take it to the next step. Really knowing the literature is what can prevent you from trying to reinvent the wheel. You'd think this would be common sense, but you'd be surprised how often people overlook it. Avoid spelling mistakes, grammatical mistakes, formatting errors. It's really annoying as a peer reviewer to see these careless mistakes because you have to ask yourself as a reviewer, well, if they're this careless when they're trying to ask me for money, how careless are they going to be when they actually do their grant? So proofread, proofread, proofread. Do it yourself. Have somebody else do it. Have somebody who knows nothing about medicine do it. Getting that right is the baseline assumption going into these grants. So it sounds like you're saying the mindset of go big or go home maybe doesn't apply particularly well in this case. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Shifting gears a bit, I'd imagine that it's important to have multiple drafts and to get feedback throughout the writing process, particularly from people who have experience in either reviewing grants or peer reviewing other research. This is probably where mentors become really important. Yeah, that's absolutely right. This is really where having great mentors is key. They provide so much, but in this specifically, it's such a a niche little field that having somebody experienced really adds a lot. They can review your drafts. They can give you pointers for how to edit things or reframe things, make things flow better. They can help you avoid those common pitfalls that I mentioned before, that if you haven't done this a bunch are really easy. I look back at my initial drafts and they're terrible. I'm better now, but still nothing like the real experts out there. So at no level does this stop. To do this, networking is really important. Figuring out who your local experts are at your institution or around your town, as well as national experts who can serve as consultants or mentors on your grant are really going to put your grant over the edge. And while we're talking about aims today, those are other important considerations for your grants. 
There's a lot of other resources that are available as well. Many times there are local grant review panels at particularly university settings, but even outside of that, you can get peer review. You just need to figure out who to ask. Hopefully there's people in your department, but if not, it's a small community in emergency medicine, and you'd be surprised if you reach out even to relatively experienced researchers and ask, where can I go to for this information? People are pretty receptive. Right. And I think the point you make about networking is so important. People forget how easy it is to reach out to people on Twitter. And it might be somebody they've never met who they reach out to and end up forming a relationship with a mentorship relationship. And many prolific researchers in emergency medicine have Twitter accounts and are pretty easy to reach through that mechanism. There's a lot of different ways you can reach out. If you go to SAM or ASEP, a lot of these people they're excited to do research. They're excited to talk research. If you come up to them at a meeting, introduce yourself and just make an introduction. A lot of them, if they can't help you themselves, they can at least point you in the right direction of who would be somebody in your field that could really provide how to open the doors that are necessary. So Mike, for new researchers who are just starting out, what are some of the key resources or opportunities that might be really helpful to them? There's a lot that the emergency medicine community has been working on over the past few years, particularly, but it's been going on for quite a while. At the annual meeting for SAEM, there's a rotating research curriculum that rotates every three years. That can be just a good little intro if you're not ready to commit to some of the bigger options yet. There's something called the ARMED course, A-R-M-E-D, that's also through SAEM and is kind of in conjunction with the annual meeting in some respects. ASEP has the Embers course, and that's probably one of the longest running courses that's gone through a number of different iterations, and a lot of successful emergency medicine researchers have been through that over the years. If you really decide you want to do this and commit some time to it, there is the SAM grant writing workshop that has an entire pre-day to it, but also has some kind of pre-work that needs to be done before you even attend the meeting. That is very high yield for people, and people come out of that really revving up and getting ready to apply for a grant. So those are the emergency medicine-specific ones. Local resources are available through CTSIs. NIH puts on things for people who are a little bit further on in their career. So there's a lot of different resources out there. But if you're just getting started, there's all kinds of things in the emergency medicine community that can wet your feet. And what is CTSI? CTSI is Clinical Translational Science Institute. Not every university has this, but a lot of big ones have it. It's a good resource locally. Those are super helpful resources. Well, Mike, thanks so much for being on the podcast with us today. We learned a ton, and we hope our listeners did too. If you had to leave us with five take-home points about specific games, what would they be? So I would say that the five most important take-home points would be, first, know your audience. Second, be the expert in your area. Third, learn how to tell a compelling story that even a lay person could read it. Fourth, as I mentioned before, proofread like crazy. Don't make those simple mistakes to set the reviewer off on a bad mood. And then finally, find a mentor you trust, who you can work with, and who has the time to dedicate to working with you and making you all you can be. I think those are awesome take-home points. Thanks for summarizing so nicely. Big thanks again to Dr. Mike Paskarich for joining us today, and we'll see you all in the next episode. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap for today. Thank you for listening to the SAEM Research Learning Series podcast. Subscribe to our Academic Life and Emergency Medicine podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes to catch the next episode. See you next time.